0: All right, good morning. Good morning. I got a great response up front here. <laughs> make, make the intern suffer and don't respond to me when I say good morning. Good morning. Oh, OK. You guys are failing. Anyway, good morning. It's great to be with you again, um, continuing our study in First John. So I'm, I'm excited. I had somebody comment to me last week. They said, why in the world did you choose First John? Like, what were you thinking? Um, it's probably one of the most confusing books in the bible not the most but you know it's up there so um with that in mind let's continue our study in the book of first john this morning we'll be in chapter 2 starting in verse 7 going through verse 27 Um, but i really let, let me just take a second let me pray for us and for this specific time that the spirit would work and that we would all understand the word of god so let me let me pray for us real quick father thank you for this day thank you that we can be here and worship you together to make much of you i pray that um as I, as I speak this morning, that your word would go forth, not my own, and that your Holy Spirit would do a work in the lives of the believers in this room. pray for your grace this hour, and as this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be um, starting in verse 7 this morning, but le- kind of leading up to that, let me just, I want, you to, I want you to do something for me. Don't look at your Bibles, don't look at your notes, don't look at anything. You can even close your eyes if you want to. Don't fall asleep, though, because that wouldn't be good. Um, but I want you to put yourself in the shoes of somebody. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite adult back around 1500 BC. Now that number means nothing to you, most people, um, but let me, let me describe it further. Put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite, and there you are in the middle of the wilderness in the Sinai Peninsula, with thousands and thousands of other Israelites around you. You recall to mind quite a few things at this moment. You've heard the stories of your ancestors of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and how God miraculously worked through them and provided a nation through their lineage which, which was nothing short of a miracle. Then God miraculously, miraculously worked through your ancestor Joseph. He provided, he protected in such a unique way that, that completely blows your mind every time you think about it. You are baffled by the sovereignty of God, not only as you hear the stories, but as you now tell those stories to your children. But then you recall to mind the stories that that you actually witnessed yourself. You think of the leader Moses and and his own life as a testament of God's grace. It's a complex mystery of God's grace. You remember how God divinely empowered uh, empowered him to lead an entire nation of people. And then you recall the most vivid parts in your mind, the ten plagues in Egypt, when Yahweh demonstrated his power over all other crafted Egyptian gods. You recall how Yahweh saved your son from mass execution during the tenth example of his power. And during Passover, you saw the love and mercy of Yahweh. You remember how God directed you and thousands of other Israelites out of exile in Egypt and into the wilderness. And then comes the Red Sea. You remember vividly standing on the shores of the water, looking out over the vast expanse, trapped, hearing the sound of of the Egyptian army rapidly approaching your position inevitably coming to either kill you or take you back into merciless slavery. You remember all these things, but then you remember how Moses spread his hands with his staff and as the power of Yahweh divided the ocean, divided the Red Sea, like a papyrus scroll in two, forming dry land. You and everybody else walked through that dry land safely across the other side, completely blown away by the power of Yahweh. And then you watched as the same water Yahweh pulled back together, capturing and destroying the impending army that was inevitably going to kill you. You've seen God work. You have seen Yahweh's power in your life personally. Yahweh saved his people. You have seen his faithfulness through all the years of your life. Now here you are, standing at the base of Mount Sinai with thousands of other Israelites around you. Moses has just encountered Yahweh. He's coming down to give you a command commandments. He gives you a message containing truth that is to instruct your life and the lives of the nation, the newly birthed nation around you. Other than the sound of the whipping wind of the desert, there is complete silence as people wait in anticipation for what Moses is about to say. And Moses begins to speak. He tells the various commands that Yahweh desires of his people whom he loves so much, the people whom he desires to be close to, the people whom he desires to have a relationship with. And then Moses pauses, the next thing he says goes down in history, and we read about it it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses changes his voice, and he articulates with divine certainty in an imperative command these words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your might. Yahweh has proved himself time and time again as the one who can rightly demand obedience, the one who who has showed his faithfulness and demonstrated his power to the nations. And after experiencing the power of Yahweh, you have no hesitation to obey. It's a natural response to the God of the universe. Now take your mind, take yourself out of the shoes of that Israelite and put yourself in the shoes of the Apostle John or the disciple John at this time. Fast forward about 1,500 years And here you are, John, watching as Jesus interacts with the Jewish religious leaders of the day, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We read about this in Matthew 22. And it says, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. He says, Jesus, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus has just articulated a command that bears a striking resemblance to the command found previously in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The language is very similar. And as we open our Bibles to to 1 John chapter 2, we look in verse 7. And John says these words, Beloved believers, I, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the very beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So what John is saying here is that there is no new doctrine that I am giving to you right now. This is doctrine that you've known. This is doctrine that you've, you've, you've grown up with, that you are familiar with. Now what exactly is this old commandment he is referring to? Nothing new. It's actually an old commandment. This is actually the Hebrew Shema found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is the commandment that Moses declared to the people at Mount Sinai. Hero, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's monotheistic. The, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Now, Jesus also gives us com- a commandment in Matthew 22, a commandment we've already looked at previously. Hero, Israel, the Lord, or, or, or sorry, uh, Matthew 22 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. The fir- this is the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, love God and love your neighbor. These are commandments that the people whom John is writing to, they already know. There's nothing new to them. But there's also a commandment that, a new commandment that Jesus gives to his believers. And if we look in 1 John 2, verse 8, look with me. It says in verse 8, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Um, which is uh, true in him and you. Because the darkness is passing away, And behold, the light—the true light is shining. And so at the same time, there is this new commandment that, that John gives to the believers he is writing to. And to understand this, we need to go back to John 13, another one of John's works, the Gospel of John. So if we look in John 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room, speaking to them, and there's a dialogue going on. But then Jesus, in verse 34, says, a new commandment I give to you. And what is this new commandment? Here it is, that you love one another. Boom. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Verse 35, and by this people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the new commandment that that Jesus gives to his disciples, he's already already clarified the Shema back in the Hebrew, but now he gives a new commandment in in John 13. A new commandment is, is this, that you love one another and you do this the same way that Christ has loved you. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And there's evidence of this, look in, in verse 35 of John 13. And by this, by this evidence, by this love that you show to other believers, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so it's an evidence. This love that you have for others is an evidence. And we read about this again in 1 John chapter 2. So I'll go back to 1 John And let's continue looking there. This was a command that was evidenced in Jesus. Um, Jesus loved God and Jesus loved others, a, a command that we are told to emulate as well. Therefore, as believers, if we are seeking to imitate Christ, if we are seeking to look like Christ, the commandment should also be evident in our lives because Christ has perfectly loved others and perfectly loved God, and now we are, as image bearers of Christ, to do the same. It's an evidence that we are Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples. We've already talked about the, the working of the Holy Spirit in our life. We've addressed this the past two weeks. But objectively, when we are saved, if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit is doing a change. We read about this in Hebrews, how he's changing you from darkness into light, changing you from the old self and working in your heart through the process of sanctification to become something new. And as you do this, you will, prog- you will progressively the work of the Holy Spirit, look more like Christ, your ideal. So there's an application to this commandment as well, if we look in verse 9 through 11 in 1 John 2. Read with me in verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Verse 10, but uh, uh, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If we look at this, it, it, it kind of, if you're here to view this, sometimes it, it comes across as almost legalistic, as a way of, if I want to, have, if I want to be a believer, I must do, a certain, do certain things. I must love other people in order to be a believer, but that is not John's point. John's point is not saying that you have to do these things in order to gain better favor with God or do these things to be a believer. These are an evidence of your faith. It's an evidence of what is already inside of you. It's an evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life. And so when we approach verses 9 through 11, loving your brother is a characteristic of your walking in the light. It's a characteristic of you maintaining a close fellowship with the source of light. Now now, John's main theme throughout most of 1 John is the idea of fellowship, right? We've looked at that in verse 1, or chapter 1, excuse me, uh, and we see this scattered all throughout the book of 1 John. Fellowship is key. And so when you are walking in the light, when you have fellowship with the source of truth, God, there are natural results. But John then gives some specific encouragement for, for people. If we look in verses 12 through 14, John gives very specific exhortations to very specific groups of people. In fact, these three groups are fathers, young men, and little children. And now, there, there is a, people will debate back and forth if there's a significance to these, these um, addresses. And what is the significance? Well, there's two main ideas as to what the significance of father, young men, and children are. First of all, people believe it could be a categorization in regard to the spiritual maturity of that particular believer. So spiritual maturity is a, a defining factor. But second is a categorization in regard to the duration that that believer has been in the faith. So spiritual maturity and duration in the faith. Now these two, they're presented as two different options, but most likely it's actually a combination of both of these categories. Why? Because there's a significant, <clears throat> there's a significant amount of correlation between these two ideas, if you really think about it. Okay? If someone is more spiritually mature, they have developed more in their spiritual walk, um, naturally, you could assume that they've been in the faith longer. And, and vice versa, right? If someone's been in the faith longer, you would assume that they're more spiritually mature. Now, this is not a, a, complete, uh, a complete paradigm for looking at it, but, but it is likely to assume that there's a, it's actually a combination of both of these. And we learn more about these people through the specific addresses that John gives to them. So look in verse... Look in verse 12 with me, where John addresses the children. John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Okay, so his message is, to you little children, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And this is this is rather simple doctrine. Simple doctrine, okay, air quotes. Um, it, it's fundamental for, for a believer. So a young believer is going to understand more simple things, such as, um, how to be saved, right? Your sins are forgiven, all right? This is, this is very simple. Simple for a young believer. But, but look at the, what John says to the fathers in verse 13. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning, okay? When he's addressing the fathers, most likely it, this is theological truths that are understood by a deeper and a more consistent relationship-based knowledge of God you are not just understanding your sins are forgiven, you're understanding God in a new way. You're understanding that God is the one from the beginning. You have a deeper knowledge of who God is. So, that, so addressing the children, John presents a bit more simple of doctrine. For fathers, it's a deeper, more understood theological truth. But when John addresses the young men, you'll notice he gives very specific words of encouragement, and he actually repeats himself. Um, look in, let's see, uh, verse 13b. Verse 13b says, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then down in 14b, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. And then again we read, and you have overcome the evil one. Most likely, he's offering these specific words of encouragement to young men, because the young men were the ones on the forefront of the battle of false teaching. As as we remember, we talked about the context of 1 John. There is quite a bit of false teaching permeating the church. And the young men would have been at the forefront of this battle in the, in the church. And so John is writing to them very specifically to abide in the truth that they know, to to remember the fact that they've overcome the evil one, they've overcome this, this false teaching, these false ideologies, and they're to abide in the truth. And so that, that, I just wanted to make a quick note about that in verses 12 through 14. Um, and again, we we see, we see how John addresses these people in a very personal way, and this is, this is almost this is very unique in the New Testament, right? John Paul is personal, but John kind of he goes almost a step further, and as you 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 step into the the, the sandals or boots or whatever of John, it's it's like you can almost see his love and desire for these people, his passion for these people, his other devo- his utter devotion to to encouraging and Uh, discipling these particular individuals in the church. So the main message so far, number one, is the new commandment that God has given to you and how that looks a certain way in your life. But if we keep reading in verses 15 through 17, John gives another very specific command. This command we find in verse 15. Read it with me. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, with any good argumentation and debate, you always want to define your terms at the very beginning. If You don't do that. You don't have an argument to base anything off of. You don't have a foundation. So let's define a term here. Let's define the term world. The the word world, that's hard to say, the word world is used quite a few times in Scripture. It's actually used in three three different ways most often. First of all, the world uh, refers to the physical universe creation, the material things of the earth, okay? Um, second, the word world, got that right, refers to the universe of people. Now, this is the material world, but specifically in regard to humanity. So, think people. And the third definition, and most likely what John is referring to here, is that is is, is um, those on the earth without religion and those who are relying on principles that are not aligned with truth. Think of it as godless practices or or this, a worldview, a framework for thinking that is predicated on godless ideas. So that is most likely what John is referring to when he talks about world here. Now this may cause, when you read this verse, verse 15, it may cause some conflict in your mind because of some of John's previous writing. When John says, do not love the world or the things in the world, you think back to another thing that John wrote in his gospel. Think back to the gospel of John. Think like chapter 3, think verse 16, right? A very familiar verse. What does it say? For God so loved the, the world. Okay, and you're like, John, what are you saying here? You've already said previously, John, that, that God loved the world. And so, so why are you saying now that we're not to love the world? It almost comes in conflict. If I want to have fellowship with God, but yet God loved the world, uh, uh, John, I don't know about this. I don't know. So what does it mean to not love the world? Not loving the world, it's not necessarily a a complete and utter rejection of the world, but rather to reject a devotion to a system, a system, a framework that that is foundationally opposed to God. Another idea, another way to think about this is, is to displace God from your life, replacing it with anything other than God, which we would define as idolatry. When you take something, you take God out of your life and you put something else in. could be a good thing, could be a bad thing, but it's idolatry if you take God out and put something else in. And so what John is saying is, don't don't utterly reject the world, but reject the system of the world. Reject the the godless system of the world. And there there is a result of this. Whoever loves the world, John says, the love of the Father is not in him, verse 15. Now, this could be a double meaning. It could mean that, that when it says the love of the Father is not in him, this could mean that the, God, the love God has for his people or it could mean the love that people have for God. Given the t- context and go- John's encouragement to not love the world, it probably means the love that people have for God. And so if you are loving the things of the world, then, then you do not have love for God, right? These two things they are mutually, ex- they're, they're mutually exclusive. You can't have both. You have one or the other. So if you're abiding in the world, if you're loving the world, then naturally the things of God you will not be loving. But if you're loving God, then the things of the world you will naturally be shunning. Okay? We'll talk more about that in a second, but um, let me just move forward through this material, and then we'll come back to that. John gives some marks of what the world looks like, what the world is. Um, he says that the desire, desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. I'll run through these quickly, but the, the desires of the flesh would mean like the indulgences of the flesh, almost an animalistic mentality, um, motivations that are sought purely from, from physical self-gratification um, of things from the world. Desires of the eyes are, it's a similar concept, but it, it has a slightly different meaning, that which is merely designed to gratify the sight. All right? Think of it as the, the frivolous, I love that word, frivolous, the frivolous vanities of the world, things that don't last, and you have your eyes set on those things. John says those are, those are the lusts of the eyes, the, 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 the desires of the eyes. And then the pride of life. The pride of life, which we've kind of already talked about, it's a higher view of self because of your acquired possessions on earth here. So the pride of life, you have an elevated view of yourself, almost an idolatrous view of self because of what you have here on earth because of the lust of the flesh, because of the lust of the eyes. And so God, um, John, John describes these things in verse 17 as the world, as things that are passing away. These frivolous things are passing away. The world is passing away. The physical world is inconsistent. It's fickle. It changes. But, he says, but in verse 17, whoever does the will of God abides forever. There are things that last forever. Eternal truths, eternal things. And you are to abide in the eternal, not in the temporal. So we we have this command from John that says, Do not love the world. Okay. There's a marketing strategy, and this is kind of going off of this. There's a marketing strategy in a lot of different things that it's called like the number strategy. Okay. If you put a number in the title of something, whether it be a book, a podcast, a YouTube video, whatever it may be, you're likely to get more clicks and more views on that particular topic. Think of it like this. If someone gave you a book that says the seven steps for financial happiness or the seven steps to be the perfect dad, happy Father's Day, all you dads in here, um, are you more likely to read a book that says how to be a good dad or the seven steps to becoming the perfect father, right? You're more likely to read the book that says the seven steps to becoming the perfect father. Why? Because, it gives me a, a list of things, and if I do these list of things, boom! I'll be awesome. I'll be perfect. I'll be the best dad ever. Now I'm not a dad, obviously, but um, so it's this, this marketing strategy. And in and fact, and oftentimes when we approach a passage like this that John says, where he says, "Don't love the world," right? We we want a checklist. We want a list of things that we can we can check off and say, "Okay." To not look like the world, I need to do this and, and this and this and this and this. And if I do these five things, six things, seven things, twelve things, twenty-seven things, okay, I won't look like the world. And that's actually a very dangerous mentality to get into. It's borderline legalistic. So I don't want to—I not want to get into the weeds of that. I don't want to give you, give you a list of things that you shouldn't do in order to not look like the world. I want to give you a principle. And let me illustrate a principle in this way. Okay, so we i put you in the shoes of an Israelite. i put you in the shoes of the Apostle John. Do one thing for me, okay? Humor me. Put yourself in the shoes. Go back as many years as it takes and put yourself in the shoes of a three- or four-year-old, okay? For some of you, this is many years. For some of you, not as many, okay? Um, You're you're a three- or four-year-old. You're just learning to talk. You probably talk for a little bit. You're still developing. One thing that's still developing is your taste buds, okay? When I was three or four, I loved fruit snacks. How many of you like fruit snacks? Okay, all right. I still like fruit snacks, frankly. But when I was three or four, I loved fruit snacks, especially the fruit gushers. Oh, so good. So good, right? Now, if my mom mom came up to me and she offered me a plate of fruit snacks for supper, (laughs) I'm taking that. I'm taking it. If she said, all right, honey, time for supper, would you rather have a plate full of colorful, attractive, sugar-filled fruit smiles, he's laughing up here, Or would you rather have a steak and some mashed potatoes and broccoli, right? It's pretty obvious what the three or four year old would choose, right? I would choose, I personally would choose, the plate full of fruit snacks. Why? Because they're colorful, they're attractive, they're sugary, they're sweet. Now, I've grown up since then, and I've had my taste buds expand, and I've tasted steak, Okay. Steak is good, right? You get a good sirloin steak. It's juicy, savory. Mashed pota- loaded mashed potatoes on the side. Broccoli. This is a really bad idea for Sunday school. Wow, I shouldn't have used this illustration. Um, y- y- you love the taste of steak, right? And as I taste steak more and more, if I were to, you know, go to go to Outback or something, and someone said, "Would you rather have a steak or would you rather have fruit smiles?" I would say, "Get that away from me, right? I don't want that." Why? Because I got a good steak over here. I got a really good steak. The world offers us, quite frequently, fruit smiles. The world offers us a lot of fruit snacks. And they're good. They look good. They taste really, really good. But once you've tasted meat before, why would you go back to fruit smiles? Why would you go back to fruit snacks? You, believer, have tasted God. You have partook of God. You know him. You abide in his love. You have tasted this meat, this steak. So why in the world would you ever want to go back to fruit snacks? And there's this, this is a principle that that I think we, we hold closely. And if we hold this, we think about this, and we abide in Christ, we abide in God, we have fellowship with God. As we continue to do that, as we understand our God better, his love, his other characteristics, what he has done for his people. Wow, the things of the earth pale in comparison to that. God's stake pales in comparison to the fruit snacks of the world. Pardon the illustration. But thirdly, we see that truth abides in believers' hearts. Truth abides in believers' hearts. Let me finish up with this section briefly. In verse 18 through 27, John is specifically um, addressing a problem that is creeping into the church at the time. We've already talked about false teaching, but John is, a, he, he mentioned these people called the Antichrists. So the last hour, is post-Christ resurrection, and these Antichrists are coming. Now, this isn't the, the use of Antichrists as John later talks about in Revelation. Um, these are most likely people who were Antichrist. Boom, right? Um, in the sense, people who were opposed to Christ and denied his deity and his humanity. There was a rapid influx in a growing number of individuals at the time who were anti and, and what were these people doing? We'll we read about this in, in verse 19, 22, and 23. They were spreading false truth. They were infiltrating the church, causing disruptions, causing dissensions, and they were, were spreading this false truth. Now, how does John exhort the believers to combat these truths? Does John say, run away, run away from the truths, get as far away from this as you can? Does John say, get really close to the truth, just give in to it? No, he obviously doesn't, we've already read about that. What John says is interesting. He says to understand the truth. How do you, how do you combat false teaching? You understand the truth. Look in verse 20, verse 20 of chapter 2. Let me read it for us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Jump down to verse 24. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has made to us, eternal life. And I write these things to you, verse 26, about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone, uh, that anyone should teach you But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, listen to what John says here, abide in him. So how do you combat false teaching? How did John encourage these believers to to combat the false ideologies of their day? Abide in God. Abide in truth. And what is truth? Truth is God. God is truth. Abide in God. Now, this is probably a pretty easy application to make to us today, right? The believers of John's day were facing Gnosticism. They were facing other forms of false teaching. I don't need to go into great detail about the the false views that we are facing in our culture today, right? Look around you. Look in our culture. Look in our society. What false truths are permeating our Christian circles? What false truths are are all around you in the workplace and other social gatherings? What false ideologies are out there? Now, how do you address these things? How do you address a powerful movement? How do you address false truth that seems to permeate everything that you do, our media, our culture, everything? How do you combat it? Do you run away from it? Do you give in to it? No, and no. You abide in the truth. You abide in what you know. You abide in God himself. And as you abide in God, as you begin... To, to abide in who God is. You have fellowship with God. You begin to develop a greater love for God. And that, that makes you look a different way. It evidences to other believers around you that you love God. You show this through your actions. But as you begin to love God more, you, you, you begin to, to attach yourself to God and have fellowship with Him and abide with Him. The things of the earth, they pale in comparison to God. But then how do you avoid truth, or excuse me, how do you avoid falsehood? Wow, that's almost reticle. How do you avoid falsehood? You abide in truth. You hold truth closely. You fellowship with your God in a personal way. You know him. There's a a psalm, um, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, right? Let Let me finish with that this morning. I think it perfectly applies here. Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. As you do that, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Abide in God. Abide in truth, believers. Love God and have fellowship with him. Let's close in prayer and then uh, prepare for worship service this morning. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you that you are truth that in you we find what is right and what is true in this world. God, in a world full of subjectivities in a world full of people's own opinions, we can look to you as a source of our, our truth. We can abide in you, knowing that you don't change, knowing that truth does not change. So Father, I pray that we would do that this week. I pray that you would empower us by your grace to go into a world that is corrupt, that is antichrist, but to go into that world with truth, abiding in truth, and that we would be secure in what we know in our faith. Lord, give us your grace to do that. We need it. We desperately need it. And Father, we, we pray for that this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for um, giving it to us. I pray that um, it would touch the hearts of our believers this morning not only through Sunday school, but also through the worship service which we're about to uh, partake in. Would you be glorified through everything that we do and say the rest of this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.